0: My name is Tim Owens, I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church, and if you are just joining us, we recently began a new series in the book of Acts. Now, as Ron mentioned a couple of weeks ago when he introduced the series, Acts plays an important role in our Bibles because it is the only historical narrative book in the New Testament. We have the Gospels, We have this one extremely unique book, Acts, and then we have the epistles. So it's a very unique role in the New Testament. And it gives us an account of the unlikely but explosive growth of the church from a relatively small band of Jesus followers in the city of Jerusalem into, as it grows into, an explosive worldwide movement. A movement, incidentally, that started with a group of people that was just about the same size as our church 120 people. The story opens in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus, just before his ascension to the Father. He is ordering his disciples to do something interesting. He orders them to wait in Jerusalem. He doesn't tell them to get busy, he says, I want you to go wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. He said in particular that the Spirit would do something for them. The Spirit would give them power to be his witnesses. That's Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a verse that many theologians believe operates as kind of a thesis statement for the entire book. Now, last week, Ron preached the beginning of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit came upon them, With three signs, a mighty rushing wind, flames of fire settling on the foreheads of all those present. And then the disciples began to speak in the languages of the diverse crowd gathered in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Now, as you can imagine, this caused quite a stir. This drew a crowd. They wanted to know what is happening, what's going on. And Luke tells us in chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, some of the crowd, many of the crowd were amazed and perplexed and they wanted to know what does this mean? But Luke tells us that others mocked and they said they're just filled with wine. In our text today, Peter is going to stand up. If this is making a Annoying noise? Yes. It's annoying me too. <laughs> is that a little better? Yes. yes. Wonderful. In our text today, Peter is going to stand up and he's going to respond to the crowd. Peter's famous first sermon in the book of Acts has two main components. First, explanation, he's going to answer the crowd's question What does this mean? So, first explanation, and then proclamation he's going to explain what they're witnessing and then he's going to proclaim the risen and reigning christ today we're going to give our attention to the first part of the sermon to peter's explanation let's read acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 21 together then we will pray and begin so please turn with me to acts 2 beginning in verse 14. be saved. Pray with me. Father, please send your spirit now to bless the preaching and the hearing and the obeying and applying of your holy and inspired and inerrant word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we jump into the outline for my sermon today, I want you all to know that I keep a very detailed Excel spreadsheet where I track all of my sermon illustrations. And what that means is that I am well aware of how many times I have used an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Now, the first thing I would like to say about that is you're welcome you don't have to thank me. I am happy to do my small part to continually put, bu- putting before you one of the best works of fiction in the last 100 years. So you're welcome. Now, I really wrestled with this. I've already used the Lord of the Rings twice, but there is a story. There is an episode in the Lord of the Rings that seems to suit this text so well that I couldn't help myself. And so here we are. In book one of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, later in the book, uh, the band, our our characters, our main characters, find themselves in the land of Lothlorien, a land ruled by Galadriel, a woman who Tolkien describes as the mightiest and fairest of all the elves that remained in Middle-earth. And Galadriel gives each of the characters a precious gift. Now, the main character, Frodo, he receives a gift that's a small crystal file. And inside this crystal file is a little bit of the light of a very important star, the star of Arendelle. And Galadriel gives him the gift with these words, may it be a light to you in a dark place. Now weeks, or maybe even a couple of months after this, Frodo and his faithful friend Sam find themselves betrayed by their guide and lost in a terrifying and pitch dark tunnel high up in a mountain pass called Sirith Ungol, the pass of the spider. But when he's there, he forgets about his gift. He forgets about it until it's almost too late. You see, it's not just a dark tunnel. There's there's a monster of evil that lives in this tunnel, a monster that's named Shelob, hiding there. And Tolkien describes Shelob this way. She was an evil thing in spider form, the last child of Ungoliant sent to trouble the unhappy world. And at the last moment when Frodo and Sam are about to die, he remembers his gift and he takes out the file and it saves their lives. Frodo and Sam are saved. This text talks about a gift that we've been given, brothers and sisters. It is a precious and a powerful gift, but I suspect that like Frodo, we often forget what we have in this text. You cannot put a value or a price tag on the gift that's described in Acts chapter 2. This text tells us that God has given us the Holy Spirit. We might summarize the main point of the text this way. The gift of the Holy Spirit both inaugurates and equips us for the last days. So the gift that we're going to find in this text, it inaugurates a new age of world history. And it also equips us for that age in special and important and key ways. Our text gives us three main points today. Uh, Point number one, a unique gift in verses 17 and 18. Point number two, at a specific time, verses 19 and 20. And point number three, for a saving purpose. Now before we jump into point number one, I want to remind us of the context for Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts our text is going to pick up in verse 14 just as peter stands up to address the crowd that's gathered in response to these miraculous signs and the first thing he does in verses 14 and 15 is he needs to deny the charge of drunkenness that's going to distract the crowd from hearing his message so that's what he does you remember some of the crowd are mocking some are amazed And they're leaning in and they're asking, what does this mean? But some are mocking the disciples. Oh, they're just drunk. They're filled with new wine. And Peter says, in effect, that is ridiculous. It is only nine in the morning. These men are not drunk. Then in verse 16, he tells the crowd something very important. He says, this is not drunkenness. What you're witnessing here is the fulfillment of a prophecy. A prophecy from the book of Joel. And he proceeds to quote Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. So, in Peter's mind and for us, the significance of what happened at Pentecost, the answer to the question, what does this mean, is explained by a prophecy that was made some 500 to 700 years prior to the day of Pentecost. If we want to understand, the meaning of Pentecost. We must give careful attention to this prophecy from the book of Joel. And the portion of the prophecy that Peter quotes here contains three distinct but related points that ought to inform how we view the period of history that we live in and also how we engage in that period of history. So that brings us to point number one, a unique Gift, Look with me at verses 17 and 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall Prophesy. These first two verses, they predict a time when God is going to do two things that are utterly unique in the history of the world up to this point. First, He's gonna pour out His Spirit on all His people, and second, all of His people will prophesy. Now let's take these one at a time. First, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. You see it in verse 17. Now, we know from the rest of the Bible that this does not mean God is going to give his spirit to all people, irregardless of what they believe about him. We know from other places in the New Testament, like Ephesians chapter one, that the spirit is given to those who believe in the gospel. That is not the point that Joel is trying to make. The point that Joel is making, which would have been shocking to Joel's original audience, but I suspect now seems commonplace if you have been in the church for more than a couple of minutes but it would have been shocking to the original audience that God is going to give his spirit to all of his people. All of his people, regardless of age, regardless of rank in society, regardless of their gender. Note the explicit references to sons and daughters, to young men and old men, to male and female servants. You see, in the Old Testament, the filling and the anointing of the Holy Spirit was primarily reserved for specific people who played specific roles in God's plan, usually mediatorial roles, roles that communicated, that that stood between God and his people, okay? You might think of the judges or the prophets or some of the priests, Some, but not all of the kings. These are the people who we read about in the Old Testament being anointed with or filled by the Holy Spirit. But Joel says that one day that will not be the case. One day, God is going to pour out his spirit on all of his people and Peter says that that day is the day of Pentecost. I want to encourage you, church, to... Stop and think about the significance of what Peter is claiming. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son, who is equal in deity, equal in attributes, equal in nature with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God Himself. Think of the things that happened in the Old Testament when people were filled with God's Spirit. In in Judges chapter 14, when Samson is filled with the Spirit, do you know what he's able to do? He's able to rip apart a lion limb from limb with his bare hands. And that physical strength, that is just the tip of the iceberg of what the Spirit is capable of accomplishing in God's people. If we just take a short survey through the book of Acts, the Spirit raises people from the dead. The spirit makes weak anxious people bold evangelists. The spirit heals diseases. The spirit breaks down long-standing racial and social barriers. The spirit takes murderers and turns them into church planters. But before we even get to the end of Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is going to grow the church from 120 people to 3,120 people. It's like the Spirit has been poured out for like 30 minutes, and the church grows to 3,000. Okay, this is the kind of power we're talking about. This is what the Holy Spirit is capable, capable of, and that, Christian, is who has come to dwell within you if you are in Christ this afternoon if we as a church are going to understand the significance of Pentecost and rightly respond to it in our own lives, the first step has got to be to make sure that we appreciate the gift of the Holy Spirit at its true value. God himself has come to live within you. I... I want to do whatever I can to provoke you to respond to that astounding claim. I just want to, I want to very briefly suggest three appropriate responses to the news that God himself lives within you, fills you if you are in Christ today. The first appropriate response is worship, is thankfulness. I want you to imagine, put yourself in the shoes of an Old Testament believer okay an old testament just a just a normal everyday man or woman from the children of Israel, who was saved because they were looking forward, trusting the promise uh, that God would one day send a Messiah. They're saved right now. They're in God's presence in heaven. And then they're, they're watching history unfold. And they see the day of Pentecost come. They've been waiting for it. They knew their Bible. They knew Joel promised this would happen one day. And the Holy Spirit is poured out. And now the Holy Spirit is in every single one of God's people. And I want you to imagine this brother or sister watching with joy when you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you at your conversion. And then I want you to imagine their confusion and maybe even their holy frustration when you and I walk out the door on a Tuesday morning and live as though we do not have the Spirit within us. I want you to imagine their response when we walk out the door and we are nonchalant or forgetful about the fact that God's own spirit has been poured out on us. Our first response ought to be worship. Thanksgiving. Secondly, intimacy. Okay, there is a reason that the Bible says the spirit is within you and does not merely say the spirit is with you. It is meant How could it not be meant to communicate an unusually profound degree of intimacy with the God who created you? He's not next to you. He is in you. He knows every thought. He understands every pain. He sees everything. He is closer to you than your closest friend. No matter the degree of intimacy that you experience in your friendships, no matter the degree of intimacy that you experience with your spouse, the Holy Spirit is closer, my friends, You have never experienced a degree of intimacy like that intimacy which is available to you with your creator by the indwelling spirit. Communion with God is made possible because the spirit is in you. You can fellowship with your heavenly father even now while I speak. And third, courage. So you should respond with worship. You should respond with joy in the intimacy that is yours through the Holy Spirit, and you should respond with courage. Friends, if the God of the universe dwells within you, what circumstance on this earth are you not capable of facing? I want you to explain it to me. Bring it. Anybody like to complain? Sometimes I do, and as a matter of fact, last night I fell into complaining, and I had to repent of it this morning and ask my wife's forgiveness. God lives within you. What is too big for you to handle now? We used to have this verse, I I used to work for a ministry that worked with youth, and we had these verses that we called what's up now verses. Verses where, where it's just meant to blow your mind. This is one of them. The day of Pentecost is one of them. God has come to live within you. What's up now, world? What you got? Okay? You should respond with worship. You should respond with intimacy with your creator. You should respond to the day of Pentecost with great courage. For the circumstances that you face. So the first thing we observe about Joel's prophecy. Which is fulfilled at Pentecost. Is that God has now poured out his spirit upon all. Not just some but all of his people. The second thing that Joel emphasizes. Is that in this new age. Which is inaugurated by the Holy Spirit. This new age will be marked by something in particular. Did you catch it in verses 17 and 18? It will be marked in a special way. By the gift of prophecy. Prophecy. Look at the emphasis here in verses 17 and 18. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what will happen? What will be the result of that pouring out? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Let your eyes skip down to the bottom of verse 18. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And they shall what? They shall prophesy. Now we know from the rest of scripture that prophecy is not the entire ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does many things. The Holy Spirit gives many gifts. So it ought to be significant for us that prophecy is the one aspect of the Spirit's ministry that is highlighted on the day of Pentecost. The day that inaugurated the age of the Holy Spirit, Peter, through the prophet Joel, chose to emphasize prophecy. Prophecy will mark the new age. And it's the same when you look at Paul's famous treatment of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Paul talks about all kinds of gifts. In three chapters of Scripture, and in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, he says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Among all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the one that Paul says you should specially desire is the gift of prophecy. And Paul devotes nearly an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians to explaining why the gift of prophecy is uniquely valuable for the church. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about a unique gift of prophecy that some Christians will have, but which is not promised to every Christian. But in our text in Acts 2, Peter is talking about something slightly different. He he seems to be speaking of a universal gift of prophecy. L- look at how. The affirmations of the gift of prophecy are bound up in Peter's argument for the universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You see, he says, sons and daughters, young and old, male and female, if we use that argument to say, okay, the Holy Spirit has been given to all of God's people, well, prophecy is woven into that argument. So, what he's saying, if you take this passage to mean that the Holy Spirit, will be given to all God's people, then you must also say that in some sense, all of God's people will prophesy. I think John Stott gets it right when he interprets these verses this way. He says this, This seems to be an umbrella use of the verb to prophesy. That is, the universal gift, the Spirit, will lead to a universal ministry, prophecy. If in its essence prophecy is God speaking, God making himself known by his word, then certainly the Old Testament expectation was that in new covenant days, the knowledge of God would be universal. And the New Testament authors declare that this has been fulfilled through Christ. In fact, it is this universal knowledge of God through Christ by the Spirit, which is the foundation of the universal commission to witness in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the thesis statement of the book of Acts. Because we know him, we must make him known. So Joel and Peter seem to be saying that when God pours out his spirit on all of his people, all of his people will prophesy in that most general sense of the word, meaning all of God's people will be empowered by the spirit to speak God's word to a lost world. What is the picture that we see emerging here? Why is the gift of pros- prophecy so central to the mission Of the church because you see whether we're talking about prophecy in a general sense in the sense the acts 2 sense or whether we're talking about the specific gift of prophecy in the first corinthians sense both have this in common hear this they both refer to speaking god's word in the power of the holy spirit and friends that is the key gift of the new testament church in the book of acts the Holy Spirit has given us, has given you, if you are in Christ today, the ability to understand and respond to and then to proclaim God's message of salvation for all mankind. Did you know that the Holy Spirit has a sword? Did you know that? I'm not going to make another Lord of the Rings reference. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul is encouraging us to put on the full armor of God, you're probably aware that there is only one offensive weapon in the list of armor. You see everything else, the helmet, the shield, the shoes, these are all defensive pieces of armor. But Ephesians 4.17 tells us this, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Whose sword is it? Is it your sword? Is it my sword? No, it's the sword of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's sword. And all sorts of pieces of the New Testament start to click into place when you understand that. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I want to show you what happens In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's whole chapter on the gift of prophecy, at the near the end of that chapter, he says this in verse 24 and 25. He's saying, what would happen if the entire church prophesied? What would happen if the entire church engaged in this gift of prophecy? He says this starting in verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What has happened there? The Holy Spirit has wielded the sword of the word. And look what happens in our own text. Right after Peter's sermon in verse 37, how does the crowd, how is the crowd described? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What happens when God's people Speak God's word under the power of God's Spirit. Things get done. Things that you and I cannot accomplish in our own strength. The lost are saved. That's what happens when we speak God's word in the power of the Spirit. How does God pierce our hearts? When we speak God's word in the power of the Spirit. Do you see why the gift of prophecy is emphasized at Pentecost as the hallmark of the church age? Folks, when you speak God's word in the context of community group, when you speak God's word as you're raising your children, when you speak God's word to your neighbors or your coworkers, you are pulling out the sword of the Holy Spirit. That is how God gets his work done in our hearts. And that is how God carries forward the mission of the church. You and I have been given an unspeakably valuable gift. If you're a Christian this afternoon, the third person of the Trinity, God's own spirit dwells within you. And when you speak God's word, the spirit uses it like a sword to accomplish God's purposes in this world and in your community. Don't forget about your gift. Don't be like Frodo and Sam. Don't be walking through the dark tunnel, afraid, thinking that you have no recourse, that you have no power. The Spirit is within you. You have the power of God's Word, the sword of the Spirit at your disposal. And friends, you are going to need it. You're going to need the Holy Spirit. And you're going to need your sword because as we're going to find out in the next couple of verses we are in a dark and dangerous place and that brings us to point number two at a specific time the gifts of the holy spirit and prophecy are not given at random jesus has poured out his spirit at a specific time in history and for a specific purpose let's look at verses 19 and 20 And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. This is sobering and scary language. And folks, it is meant to be scary it is meant to operate as a warning for us pause and allow yourself to take in the prophetic image blood and fire and a vapor of smoke the sun will be darkened the moon will look be as red as blood you can make a biblical argument for understanding these words either literally as upheavals of nature or metaphorically as convulsions, political convulsions in world history. But either way, whether you take it literally or metaphorically, both would depict an extremely dangerous and fearful situation. Do you see that? That if you understand it metaphorically, it does not let you off the hook. It is still a dark place. To be. Now there's some disagreement among commentators whether these specific signs were fulfilled on the day of the crucifixion. You remember the sky was darkened, there was an earthquake, so there were upheavals of nature on the day of the crucifixion, or whether these signs were fulfilled in AD 70 in the sacking of Jerusalem by Rome, or whether these specific signs point to a future day. Regardless of the timing of these specific signs, the most significant phrase is found in verse 20. The great and magnificent day of the Lord. And no one in the New Testament disagrees about the meaning of that. New Testament authors unanimously use that phrase to refer to the future day of final judgment. In fact, Peter himself says something extremely similar to this text in 2 Peter 3.10. And here he is unmistakably warning us about the future. He says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I think most of the time, friends, we read Acts chapter 2 and we skip past the apocalyptic imagery. How many times have I done that? I read Acts chapter 2, and I oversimplify it to just this. God has given his spirit to all people. Praise the Lord. Yes, praise the Lord. He has, and we celebrate that. But he has given his spirit to all people in a specific time, and that time is a very serious time. The giving of the spirit is not all there is to the prophecy, is it? Look at the beginning in verse 17, the beginning of Peter's quote of the prophecy from Joel. And in the last days, according to this prophecy, the giving of the Spirit means that in God's eyes, which is the only perspective that matters when it comes to interpreting world history, a new age has begun on the day of Pentecost, and it is the last stage of God's grand plan. It is the last stage of the world before the great and terrible day of the lord and we need to pause and meditate on the day of the lord joel's prophecy connects to an entire network of prophecies in the old testament mostly in the writing prophets and in the book of the 12 in hebrew the phrase is yom yahweh And the description of that day in the Old Testament is so terrible that you almost want to whisper the phrase. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger. Jeremiah 46, 10, That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes, The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. Joel chapter 2 verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. The Hebrew word that we translate awesome has nothing in common with how we use the word awesome. It means fearful. Most translators translate that word terrible. It is great and very awesome and who can endure it? Obadiah 15 For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done it shall be done to you your deeds shall return on your own head God will not be mocked what mankind has reaped man will ma- what mankind has sown man will reap Folks the next event In redemptive history, the next event on God's calendar is the day of the Lord, Christ's return and final judgment. Hear this. The Holy Spirit and the gift of prophecy have been given for such a time as this. Acts 2, and specifically Joel's prophecy, portrays God's church as prophets of the end times. To you, it has been given to understand that Jesus Christ is going to return and judge the living and the dead. To you has been given the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, to warn the nations about what is coming next. We live in a spiritually dark age. And if we trust Peter, difficult times are ahead. But you have been given a powerful gift Do not walk out into the world tomorrow ignoring the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a battle that we walk into. Don't forget to take your sword. And that brings us to our final point for a saving purpose. We have been given a unique and extraordinary gift. Point number one, at a specific time in world history. Point number two, the last days. And we've been given that gift for a saving purpose. Look with me at verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? From the day of the Lord. From the blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Can you feel the significance of what we are saved from? Can you feel the weightiness of the message we've been given to take to the nations? The Holy Spirit does many things in our lives, brothers and sisters. He glorifies Christ first and foremost. He brings conviction of sin and opens our eyes to understand God's word. He gives us grace to obey God's commands. He intercedes for us. He makes it possible to have personal fellowship and intimacy with God. He gives us spiritual gifts. But in Acts chapters 1 and 2, Luke is emphasizing one thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's emphasizing that the Holy Spirit gives us power to be Jesus' witnesses on earth. Luke is emphasizing the prophetic role that has been entrusted to the church, the role that we play as we proclaim the coming day of judgment and God's offer of salvation from it. This prophecy from the book of Joel defines a key aspect of the church's calling and mission. Paul makes this abundantly clear when he quotes the very same verse from the very same prophecy in Joel in Romans chapter 10. And Paul says this, Paul's going to really unpack it for us. Just in case we thought we didn't have a responsibility here that the Holy Spirit's going to do it without our help, Paul is going to tell you exactly what this means for you and for me. Romans 10 verses 13 and 14 and verse 17 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the prophecy from Joel, also quoted in Acts 2. How will that happen, Paul? How are people going to call on the name of the, the Lord? Well, I'm glad you asked. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Church family, God's purpose in the age of the church, the last age before the day of judgment, is salvation. Stott summarizes our entire text today, the entire prophecy that Peter quotes. He summarizes it this way. Between the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came, inaugurating the last days, and the day of the Lord, when Jesus will come, concluding them, There stretches a long day of opportunity during which the gospel of salvation will be preached throughout the world. We are living in the long day of opportunity. That opportunity is going to come to an end. Peter already told us, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do you perceive the love and grace of God in this long day of opportunity? God's purpose in this age of the world, God's purpose in the church age, is to save the lost. But here this church family, his chosen method of saving the lost is when you and I open our mouths and speak the good news of Jesus Christ. When we exercise the prophetic ministry with which we have been entrusted. The Holy Spirit has a very powerful and very effective sword, but the sword is brought to bear on our lives and the lives of our children and the lives of the people in our community who do not yet know the Lord when we read and speak and sing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Friends, the gospel is the tip of the sword. The gospel is what the Spirit is wielding with great power in the last days. So I have a question for you. When was the last time you used the sword? I mean, when was the last time that you spoke the full gospel message in a conversation. I'm not just talking about spiritual things, a conversation about spiritual things. I'm not just talking about a conversation that's tangentially related to the gospel or just good moral advice. When was the last time you attempted to help someone understand How faith in Jesus' completed work of redemption would dramatically impact them in whatever season of life they find themselves in at this moment. It is the gospel that comforts the afflicted, it is the gospel that gives courage to the timid and fearful, it is the gospel that brings conviction and humility to those who are proud and sinful. It gives hope to the oppressed. It gives direction to the aimless. It provides the only true foundation for Christian obedience. And it warns and seeks to save the lost. In our conversations at community group and over coffee with friends, and as we're raising our children and talking to our neighbors, the Holy Spirit within you has given you the power To speak the word of Christ, and the Spirit has the power to make that word life-changing for them. That is what does it. The Spirit wielding the sword of the word. The worship team can come on up. I have two points of application that I believe that this text presses upon us today. First, for those of you who may be sitting here and you have never honestly repented of your sins, turned away from your own way of life to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, to trust his death on your behalf, if that is you, the day of the Lord is coming. If you do not trust Jesus, For the forgiveness of your sins, scripture teaches that you will bear the penalty of your sins. And that day will be more horrifying than you and I can even imagine. Please heed the warning of Joel's prophecy. If you are uncomfortable in your seat right now, and you do not know what your status will be on that day, I plead with you. Talk to the person next to you in the row. Come talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you about this. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Today we are in the long day of opportunity. We don't know when that day will end. Please do not walk out of here Without knowing for sure what your status will be on that day and for those of us who are Christians today remember the gift of Pentecost remember the powerful and unique gift that God has given to his people in the last days these days the last age of the world before the final judgment You have the Holy Spirit living within you. Let me remind you, there is nothing you are facing right now that the Holy Spirit is not equal to. He is powerful. He is strong. He has the ability to pierce your heart in just the way that it's needed, to pierce your heart in a healing and saving way. He has the power to pierce the hearts of your children. He has the power to change the hearts of your neighbor in this proud and sinful city of pasadena the holy spirit is not daunted he comes with the sword we have a role to play we have to open our mouths and speak the word of god walk in the prophetic ministry that you have been called to and gifted for and can i make an appeal to you we've been talking about the general sense of prophecy in acts 2 But there's a specific gift of prophecy in Corinthians and elsewhere in the book of Acts. Can I plead with you to pray for that gift too? Paul says we should earnestly desire it. Would, Moses says in Numbers chapter 11, would that all God's people would prophesy. Would that Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena was filled with the gift of prophecy. Would you pray for that? You and I are called to warn a lost world about the coming day of the Lord and proclaim God's offer of salvation. Let's do it in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, please come and make your word effective. Please cause your Spirit to fall on us afresh, to fill us with boldness, and to walk in the ministry that you have given us. Please let us walk out of here full of praise and worship that you have seen fit to pour out your very spirit on your church, and may it have its intended effect in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.